So, um, seeing as this is the first in this series of talks called Great Writers Inspire, I'm going to talk about what's often regarded as the first great text in English literature, the long old English poem that we now call Beowulf. I'm going to ask a few questions about what we mean when we say a writer in the Anglo-Saxon period, and whether we can really talk of the Beowulf poet in the way we talk of, say, Swift or Blake or some of the other writers who will be discussed later on. Um, Beowulf survives today in just one manuscript copy. This was made by two scribes. Uh, we call them rather unimaginatively scribes A and B. Um, they were working around the year 1000. We know that from the handwriting. Um, and the manuscript is now in the British Library. You can go and see it. It's on public display most of the time. Um, as you can see from the slide, the manuscript's not in very good condition. It is 1,000 years old. Um, it's something of a miracle that it survives at all. A lot of Anglo-Saxon manuscripts were destroyed in the Norman Conquest. Um, the few that survived that didn't survive the dissolution of the monasteries. Um, Beowulf also survived a fire in 1731. It was thrown out of a library window. So we're really very lucky to have it. Um, some of the leaves of the manuscript are actually singed around the edges. Not this one, in fact, but it's still in pretty bad condition. Um, of course, the scribe who wrote these particular lines of Beowulf, scribe A, wasn't the poet, although he might be said to be the author or editor of the text that we now read, in that this scribe provides us with our only version of this part of the Beowulf story. There could, of course, have been as many versions of this story as there were Anglo-Saxon poets to tell it. Each poet could have amplified or embellished parts of this story to suit his audience. In fact, as we'll see, in the poem that we now have, there are several examples of oral poets, or shops as they're called in Old English, shaping or adapting traditional tales. If we look at the first few lines of Beowulf then, which is on the next slide, uh, we can see how the poet presents himself in the role of a traditional narrator. He's engaging a listening audience in a collective act of remembrance. And I'll just read that for you in Old English. What we gardener in gardeum Theod Kuninger Thrum Jefrunen, who the Athelingers Ellen Fremeden. So if I translate that word for word, it means something like what or listen. We of the Spear Danes in days of yore, people kings' might or strength have learnt about. So we have learnt about the might or strength of Danish kings in days of yore, how those Athelings achieved glory. So the narrator wants us to think of him as part of a group. We have heard these things. He's someone who mediates cultural memory through story. He's not an original artist in the modern sense, but rather a guardian of tales which are part of a common inheritance. The inherited nature of this story is emphasized throughout the poem. He keeps using phrases like, It's Shafran, I have learnt, or It's Yehirt, I heard. And the narrator often refers to Germanic legends in a very elusive and sometimes even cryptic way, which certainly implies that his audience was already familiar with much of this material. But how traditional is Beowulf, and to what extent is the poet engaged in creating a new original text? So the Old English word for poet or singer, shop, is related to the Old English verb shippen, to shape or create. Um, Anglo-Saxons are very interested in the myth of the oral poet. Uh, Bede tells the story of Cadman, who was uh, an illiterate cowherd who received the gift of poetry from God. Uh, this is a sort of origin myth, then, for English poetry. 
In another 10th century or early 11th century manuscript called the Exeter Book, you've got two poems called Deor and Widsith, which describe oral poets lamenting the fact that they don't now have a status in society or a job. In Beowulf, there are several passages where a Danish shop is carefully described in the act of shaping old tales into new forms. One effect of these performances is to give us a kind of interpretive gloss for the events of the main narrative. So, for example, um, the building of the Great Hall, Herot, is marked by Sutol Sang Shoppers, the, the sweet or clear song of the shop. And this shop or poet paraphrases uh, Genesis 1, um, telling us how, say, Almitiga lief el shop, so how the Almighty shaped or created all of life. So this pun on shop and yesheop identifies the act of poetic shaping with that of divine creation. And in fact, in Old English, shippened is a common word for God. The shop's ability to explain human history in terms of biblical story also aligns him with the narrator, who consistently grounds his tale in the mythical patterns of the Old Testament. So Grendel's exile from Herot and his assaults on the newly created hall echo the falls of Lucifer um, and Adam and Eve, in fact. And Grendel's um, status as an exile is explained by the narrator in terms of a genealogy which traces his ancestry back to Cain. During the feasting in Herot, after Beowulf's defence of the hall against Grendel, Hrothgar's shop sings an abridged version of a story called the Freswal, the Frisian Slaughter. This story was well known to the Anglo-Saxons. It's featured in another poem that we call the Finsberg Fragment. Um, in the fragment, you get uh, the focus on, on the defence of the hall. But in Beowulf, the shop focuses instead on the themes of maternal grief and the impulse towards revenge the shop's choice of material turns out to be prophetic, as Grendel's mother is soon going to attack Herot, in fact the same night, in revenge for the killing of her own son. Another example of the art of the oral poet occurs when another shop celebrates Beowulf's victory over Grendel by way of allusion to two figures from earlier poetic traditions. And this is the next slide. Huilum Kuningus Thane, Guma Gilpladen, Yida Yemundig, Say the eld fella eld ye sayena warn ye munda, word other fand, soth ye bunden, sedge eft on gan sith beowulfes snitrum sturian, and on spade reckon spell ye rada, wordum rixlen, well whilch ye quath, that he from Sigmundes sayen herdes elendadum, uncuthes fella, while singers ye win, weed a sithes, that are they gumen a bern garwa ne wisten. So sometimes the king's thane, a man laden with stories, remembering songs, he who a great many of old sayings remembered from afar, he found other words truly bound together. The man afterwards began to recount Beowulf's tale skillfully and successfully to recount a story, to change with words. He said a great deal that he had heard said about Sigmund's famous deeds, many unknown things about the exploits of Wal's son, far travels, things which the sons of men did not readily know. So I think this account of a Danish oral poet creating a new poem about Beowulf from existing materials can give us a useful way of thinking about the Beowulf poet's own compositional technique. 
Both poets possess knowledge of old tales beyond the memories of their audience, and both locate this original material in a traditional context by referring to what they've heard said. Another story which the audience of Beowulf probably did not readily know is that of Beowulf the Yat's three monster fights. This story doesn't survive in Scandinavian tradition, and most critics think it was probably an English addition to Scandinavian legends. So for the final part of this talk, I'm going to briefly discuss how the poem invites us to think critically about just how traditional Beowulf actually is. On his entrance into Herot, this is his first real uh, entrance in the poem, Beowulf declares his reputation as the binder of five giants and an unspecified number of Nikaras, uh, sea monsters. But this story is soon questioned by Hrothgar's Thyle, his kind of advisor, who's called Unferth. Unferth claims to have heard tales about Beowulf losing a swimming competition with a guy called Breca. And this is the next quotation. Unferth says to him, I'll just translate this for you, are you the Beowulf who competed against Breca in a swimming contest across open water, where in your arrogance you tried the waves and for a foolish boast risked your life in deep water? He outswam you. He had more strength. In support of this case against Beowulf, we learn much later in the poem that the Yats had in fact considered Beowulf lazy and cowardly. But the budding hero denounces Unferth's version of events and casts himself as the greater swimmer of the two and brave vanquisher of nine Nicaras. So we can see Beowulf here performing a role equivalent to that of the traditional narrator and his shops. He's amplifying a version of his own tale before a listening audience. These same rhetorical skills are on display later when Beowulf returns to Hugelac's court and embellishes his tale of his adventures among the Danes. He adds all kinds of new details. He he describes Grendel's glove, a kind of pouch in which he puts these corpses that he's going to eat. And he starts talking about Hrothgar's daughter, Freyawaru. None of this was mentioned before. Is he telling the truth? So Beowulf shares with the poet and his fictional shops a taste for poetic license, embellishment, and amplification. He declares before Unferth that he had the greater merestrengo, sea strength, and in his speech to Hugelac, he praises the company in Herot as the most joyous under the heavens. So Beowulf invites its audience to consider the complex role of oral poets, in this case Beowulf himself, as mediators of stories which they must reshape with each new performance. Of course, Beowulf is not in its present form an oral poem, but it's a written text, whatever its origins may have been. After the conversion in the 6th and 7th centuries, Anglo-Saxon England underwent a transition from a state of primary orality, where the technology of the word was as yet unknown, to one of residual orality, where literacy is the preserve of an educated elite. Stories about Hrothgar or Hugelac must have originally circulated in oral form, given the illiterate nature of southern Scandinavia in in this period. It's likely that some of these stories were also the subject of oral poems in Anglo-Saxon England. But as these tales encountered the literate culture of Christianity, they came to be copied into manuscripts and thereby fixed to some extent. It's impossible to say whether the interest in orality in Beowulf was inspired by the poet's first-hand experience of the performance of shops. When we talk about the Beowulf poet, we're really speaking of the individual 
or individuals who shaped these traditions into the texts that we now read. So perhaps we should think of the term the Beowulf poet as a collective noun. So I hope that I've shown you some ways in which the Beowulf poet, or rather Beowulf the text, engages in an instructive metafictional discourse about the inherently unstable nature of oral storytelling. Thank you.